Hi, and welcome to episode 2 of The Coriolis Effect, from Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods, entitled The Dark Nest Points Between the Stars. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew. And we want to kick this episode off with a great big thank you to all the people who listened to the last episode and liked what we've done, and who are the reason that Dave and I are here again. Um, in fact, I've taken some names off the internet, and... Um, I know you didn't write us letters, uh, but I'm going to give a big shout out to Christopher Moore, Minor Illusion, Andrew Cole, Kronos Worm, Anthony Underwood, John Boylan, Ricard Antroia, uh, Jamie Delane, Chris Wolfe, Sylvain Robertillo, or Robertai, I think, uh, Samaj Rakeb, who's given us an interesting suggestion about looking into atheists in the Third Horizon, Phil Massey, and, uh, oh, I can't read that. And Andrew, <laughs> whose surname I wrote down really badly. I think we need to apologise for uh, any of Matthew's pronunciation there. And if we've left anybody out, uh, please, uh, you know, let us let us off. We'll make sure we add you next time. Yes. And, uh, of course, some of you might well have um, uh, talked to us or about us on other media. So when I talk about uh, tier quadruple 4A on... Um, uh, on Reddit, Reddit or Grimes Prime, your names might already have been mentioned, and Johan Gottlieb as well has been a follower of ours on Twitter. Hi to you. Anyway, uh, you're all—all all of you who fed back—are the reason why we're here this week. Well, I had a little, a particular bit of feedback from uh, from a friend of mine called Rich on my my piece last time about the system generation uh, process. And and he said, yeah, it was all it was all really good until, using his words, uh, I trashed the system generator as an in-game tool. That wasn't my intention at all. Uh, when I was talking about uh, how I use the the generator, that that's just my my preference. I think for me, it's better to do it before the game. But it's uh, entirely appropriate to use that system generation if you want to in the game itself. If um, you might even want to get your players to be rolling the dice, perhaps. And do it as a group, uh, as a group activity, rather than doing it yourself. At least that way, you'd, you'd involve your players. But I think up to the you, uh, up to the GM and the players to decide the best way of doing it. You know your your friends and your group. So I certainly didn't mean to trash it at all in that sense. I hope it didn't really come across that way. Apologies accepted on <laughs> Rich's behalf. <laughs> that sounded like apology accepted, Admiral Nida. <laughs> I thought, uh, yeah, thanks for that. Right, so um, so today, Matt is going to talk to us a little bit about his talent of the week a bit later on. But the main thing we wanted to talk about is darkness points. How you earn them, how you might use them, and a few of our thoughts on how you might not want to use them. I'm starting to get some good experience with darkness points running my Spectral Corsair campaign at the moment. Yeah, now, we started talking about that last week, but um, you didn't tell us who your... Um characters are in in that campaign <laughs> well i thought you might say that so just before we get on to the darkness point discussion have a very quick listen to this the ship was a class three light freighter with a few modifications that a trader turned smuggler might like she was found buried in the depths of the shipyards of halgria in orbit around kua battered and weather-beaten but was bought up cheap by the robber baron from jacroom jubal aldair Bought cheap because everyone knew the ship was haunted. But the ship was in decent working order, 
and Captain Leo Valdez had no hesitation when his friend and patron, Jubal, offered to go halves with him and his crewmates. Valdez needed a ship, and Jubal was offering him one, and thus the spectral corsair cleared the tower. Years before, Leo Valdez had fled the Altai system and his life as a pirate. He'd just been trying to make ends meet in desperate times, but his pirate brethren were happy to kill to order if the money was right. Valdez wasn't happy, and the money could never be right for what they were being paid to do. But it's not so easy to leave, and his departure was seen as treachery by his former allies, and they left a high price on his head for deserting them. While Valdez knows the spectral corsair is cursed, the icon's face is turned away, he knows as well that the icons favour him, and will protect the corsair at the last, whenever she most needs it. His engineer, Sebastian Fenwick, better known as 8-Bit, as he's lost the middle finger of both hands, but won't explain how or why, is also running from his hidden past. Something happened, and the law is still out there looking for him. The curse of Ishma Earth shadows his movements, and his captain is all too cavalier and reckless, making too big a splash wherever they go, and drawing too much attention. 8-Bit fears this will, sooner or later, call the attention of the law down on them. He tries to avoid leaving the ship, terrified his past will find him, and his happiest moments are spent in his engine room, tinkering with gadgets and gizmos. Hanbel the Humanite hails from some dreadful backwater planet, and was born with a rough and tough skin to withstand the high winds and harsh sands. How he learned the skills to be a pilot, no one knows, and Hanbal hasn't said. What he did before meeting Valdez remains a mystery too, but the targeting cybernetics in his eye hint at some violent past. He is Zenithian through and through, so much so that he has trouble hiding his disdain, even hatred of the first come and everything they stand for. Callum Carter is the muscle of the group, a cybernetically enhanced soldier with big weapons and at least one grenade. He is also the ship's gunner, with a taste for gunning down fleeing people with spaceship-scale weapons, as well as firing countermeasures to keep them all safe. However, his love of shiny cybernetics is a problem, an addiction even, and his reckless desire to try new things will get him into trouble one day. The final member of the team is Ajit Mia, once the ship's sensor operator, but who had left some years ago to take up a new life as a freelance spy and covert operative. Having worked many questionable jobs, Mia ended up employed by the Legion in the IWAS system, running infiltration operations on Trini. Despite, or maybe because of, his multiple licenses for weapons and gear, he ended up heavily indebted, and eventually implicated in the assassination of a leading Draken artificial on the planet. Mia was trapped, with the noose closing, and he needed a last-ditch chance to escape, only to find the icons had brought the spectral corsair and his old friends right to his door just when he needed them most. I'm really interested to hear about Hamble there. He sounds really similar to uh, one of the characters uh, in my campaign, and in fact, I think they've got very similar uh, humanite talents. Which is handy because um, I'm going to be talking about uh, my mate Andy's humanite talent uh, later on in the program. Yeah, it's really interesting that uh, in two campaigns, and we've only run two campaigns, two of the characters have independently come up with very, very similar uh, ideas for their humanite character and uh, immediately gone to a talent that 
that doesn't exist in the book. So, yeah, really interested to hear that a bit later on, Matthew. And I want to hear some more about uh, what's going on with the Spectral Corsair later in the programme too. But first of all, you promised darkness points. We did, didn't we? So, darkness points. I think the first thing I want to say, uh, and I, I believe you mentioned it in the last the last podcast, but I, I really like the darkness point mechanic um, over and above uh, the fate, glory, destiny point mechanic that you get. Largely because I, f- I feel, having run many games that have fate glory points that the players have to spend to get themselves out of sticky situations they're, they're too much like a get out of jail free card sometimes and you know as a gm you might have spent a lot of time a lot of imagination building up to a really key moment in the narrative or the scenario only for someone to pull out a destiny point and throw your whole game off uh off kilter which is fine uh, i don't mind that it works very well in a lot of games but the darkness points changes the way you do that which i really really like well, I think it's interesting the way that, um, well, f- for a start, uh, Fria Ligan uh, treat the re-roll mechanic very differently in, in all three of their games. You've just bought um, Tales from the Loop, so uh, you'll know more about that than me. But from what I've read, they're all very different and they reflect the sort of story that's being told. And I'm going to take issue with um, with what you're saying about uh, lots of the other sort of bonus point mechanics that you see uh, be they bennies in savage world fate points in fate plot points in uh, cortex plus games i think they're trying to do a different thing you and i played the firefly rpg and there you can see the way they're using plot points there to emulate the sort of arc of a, an episode of firefly things go wrong at the beginning and in fact, players are encouraged to take risks and let things go wrong in the beginning and earn themselves plot points, which then they can use to uh, do heroic things and be splendid and win by the end of the episode. I think that um, works. I think so that works there. What I love about what darkness points do is, well, for a start, they don't limit players doing cool stuff. Players can you know, have as many re-rolls or should I say, can have one re-roll on as many actions as they like throughout the episode. But what you're doing is you're building up a pool of nasty things to happen for them. So if you like, the the story is a whole different arc, a, a darker arc that fits the, the setting. Yeah, I think there's a thing about um, sort of the narrative use of fate points, glory points that help you drive the story rather than driving the mechanics of the game itself. So if a character is on the verge of dying um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that's narratively satisfying, pulling out a point that goes, ha ha, I'm alive, doesn't feel narratively right and sometimes might not feel entirely right in terms of the game mechanics. Darkness points do it differently, as we've said. They, they, they don't allow you to do that. They give you a chance to survive a game, um, but they don't allow you to completely turn turn the narrative of the game on its head. Anyway, let's move on to actually a little bit about Darkness Points themselves. So the first thing I was going to talk about was about how you go go about getting Darkness Points in the game. And we ought to be saying here it's the GM that gets the Darkness Points. Absolutely. The players yeah. have an unlimited pool of Darkness Points to give to the GM. So yeah, player actions will result in, in the GM getting Darkness Points. Although some scenarios, uh, I think the, uh, the statuette scenario in the book... Um, the starter scenario gives you four darkness points to begin with as a as a as a GM. 
yeah, it's up to you whether you want to do that or not, because I find the players give you plenty anyway. But the, there are there are six ways really that the GM will get darkness points. One is when a player um, prays to the icons for a reroll. Travel in deep space. So if you're a long way away from uh, civilization or the space lanes, that will earn you darkness points. Portal jumps, obviously, as you are flying uh, along with the icons almost in uh, in portal space, they earn you darkness points as well. Doing evil things or experiencing traumatic events will also earn you darkness points. And I've had um, uh, players who have rather ruthlessly and a fitted and in a fit of peak kill npcs only only to earn darkness points as a result of it using some talents so icon talents all icon talents will earn the gm darkness points and there's a correction on our discussion from last time isn't there matthew around the deckhand talent oh yeah i read out the deckhand talent uh, when you were talking about that um, because it seemed to be quite a powerful one, and I wanted to look it up in the book, and um, it appeared in reading out uh, the talent that there was no limits on its use. You didn't have to spend a darkness point, or um, uh, you could you could you could use it as many times as you wanted in a scenario. Yeah. So as as a, as an icon talent, it's only usable once per scenario, and it will generate a darkness point for the for the GM. Yeah, yeah, that clarification is on page 71 of the book. As opposed to, what, page 72 that you were looking at? On page 72, which is the <laughs> one I was reading. Well, you know, you said you read the rules back to back to front, didn't you? So, um, you know, you should have picked it up. So other, other talents will also earn you uh, darkness points, but not all of them. So four of the group talents will earn darkness points and only two of the general ones. There are quite... oh, Which of those? Uh, general, there's, there's two. There's one called Blessing which uh, off the top of my head, I don't know exactly what it does, but I guess the name, of the, the clue is in the title. And the other is called Judge of Character that allows you to, uh, I think, recognise whether someone's being honest with you or uh, that kind of thing. Cool. And the last point, so the last way, so that's five. So the sixth, the sixth way of using uh, generating darkness points is mystical powers. Now, none of my players are mystics, so we don't have any of that in, in my campaign. Um, but use of mystical powers will generate a darkness point uh, on each time you use them. It's fun. There's interesting <laughs> going back briefly to our our fate point discussion. Um, there is one group talent uh, which falls to the pilgrim group uh, called Mercy of the Icons, which works a little bit like like a fate point in that sense. In that that talent allows allows those players to reverse the effect of darkness points that there are. The referee's just played. So he could uh, have more reinforcements turn up for the bad guys by using some darkness points. And they could invoke that talent and say, no, no, the icons aren't going to let that happen. And then uh, the referee would have to to manage that because th- those darkness points would have been nullified. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting, isn't it? It's kind of um, some more reinforcements turn up. Oh, no, they don't. Um, <laughs> or, or a bit so, like, yeah, f- you know, more, more reinforcements turn up, but they all trip over the same tr- the same log. Yes. <laughs> or the airlock slams shut, maybe. That would be a more narratively appropriate um, way of doing it. Whose idea... Uh, who, uh, do you think it's the player's or the GM's uh, responsibility to come up with a way of, of stopping those reinforcements or whatever darkness point effect? Uh, it doesn't 
offer any guidance. Um, I think if the players can come up with a good idea, that would be great, and maybe do it kind of collaboratively. Or if the if the GM was really quick on his toes, he might be able to work it out in a way that does stop that particular thing happening, but then still allows some further consequence. Depends how sneaky he wants to be. And what about um, the ways that GMs can use darkness points? Well, I think um, the first thing I'd say uh, that there's a key principle here for me. Um, I don't think this is articulated in the book, but I think in essence, as a GM, you can probably use darkness points in any way you think is appropriate. You know, use your imagination. But I think there are some key principles that you'd need to adhere to to make him uh, make the use of darkness points really effective and add to the game. I think firstly, it needs to be narratively satisfying. Uh, the story needs to flow a little bit. And I think if you threw something in with darkness points that was totally from left field uh, and didn't wasn't nar- narratively satisfying, that would be that would be that wouldn't be the best way to spend the points. I think. Second- yeah, I, it's interesting. Um, as you know, when I I've only I've only won uh, I've only run. Uh, excuse me. Teeth I've in. only run the one game uh, with you guys. Uh, and it's the first time I wanted to play or I, I was playing it. And I didn't want to use any darkness points in that game because I wanted to be able to take a step back and kind of watch myself GM and think about how I would have used darkness points if I hadn't set myself that limit. Yeah. And there was one very key moment where I think narratively it would have been a good opportunity to use darkness points. And that's when you were having the gunfight with the bad guys. And I think I could have... Uh, spend a few darkness points to have some reinforcements turn up. Yes. Partly because you, you dealt with the bad guys so effectively through prayer and the application of high calibre um, ammo. Um, and the overwatch mechanic. You almost one-shotted really them. Yeah. And there, I think, you know, I could have stretched that fight out a bit longer. Although, actually, you know, not spending them was also uh, a narratively satisfying uh, way of that happening, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think also the, the, the principle of of using them for anything uh, also applies to what we talked about last time, about the Ishma Earth um, mechanic. Oh, yeah. You came up last time with a brilliant idea of um, uh, maybe you know, people having to, or the GM having to spend darkness points when uh, when somebody had an Ishma Earth license absolutely, uh, to yeah. cause some bureaucratic um, difficulties for them. And actually reflecting on that, I thought, you know what? Actually, that's the sort of thing one should be spending darkness points on anyway. So yeah. I've written a little sort of rule for myself that if ever I do want to obstruct the players with a bit of bureaucratic nonsense, that will cost a darkness point. Yeah. Whatever. And then whether whether they have a license or not. And then I even thought that maybe if they have got a license and they say, well, actually, we can use this to get past the um, whatever bureaucratic obstacle I put in their way. That you might then it would cost the GM another two darkness points if they wanted to ah. uh, to uh, try and ignore the effects of the of the common law license. So uh, yeah, I was looking at how many darkness points it costs for all the different things a GM can do. Yeah, well, and it's... I noticed. You know, but generally it's between one and three. Yeah, it's mostly one. Uh, there's a few twos. Um, well, let's come on to that in a second, then, Matthew. Sort of so, um, I think the other thing that I think, I'd, in terms of key principles that I'd really want to mention, is uh, we don't want to 
have the GMs looking like the use of darkness points is entirely arbitrary. Uh, I think that's there's a real risk in 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 spoiling the experience for the players if darkness points are used. You know, they spent all evening, all afternoon getting to their goal. They've they've played really well and they've done some really good stuff, and they're just about to achieve whatever it is they're going to achieve. And the referee goes, "Ha ha! Here's two darkness points. No, you don't." Yes, that you've w- lost the one thing you need. That yeah, you're right. That's, so there's a real that's risk a, in that. A I terrible manoeuvre, a really cruel manoeuvre for most GMs to do. I'd only ever use it against you, Dave. When you're <laughs> there is a theme coming out here, isn't there, Matthew? I guess. A- yeah, maybe. <laughs> right. So, I mean, how do how do we go about using? What can we use darkness points on? So there are three general um, sort of categories that uh, that you can use darkness points in the game. One is to help non-player characters and creatures. The options you have there are things like re-rolling, like praying, but it's, it's you know, uh, for creatures, dark morphs, constructs, spirits, sarcophagi, those things that aren't human, they can't pray, but you can still use darkness points to help them. Yeah, you have to use darkness points to activate a lot of their powers. You do. In, in that respect, it's a bit like um, Knight's Black Agents, where all the vampires have what are called aberrance points. Yes. And, uh, I mean, the whole the whole rule system of gumshoe games like Knight's Black Agents is about spending points, but aberrance points are something that players don't have. Only the GM has those, and he uses those to activate vampire powers. Yeah. And in much the same way, your djinns and your other supernatural creatures in the Third Horizon need to spend darkness points to make their powers work. The same also applies to non-player character talents or abilities. So if you want them to apply, you need to spend darkness points to help them as well. Yeah, and of course the environment as well. Um, they, they give a couple of examples, don't they, Dave, of environmental challenges that you can activate with darkness points. So yeah, so um, in terms of the environment, they offer, they give you two uh, two two offerings, as it were. One is uh, you introduce an innocent uh, or a bystander who's suddenly in danger as a result of what's going on, be it combat or something else. Or um, they call it nature's wrath, which is basically a, a, a catch-all for any kind of environmental weather, building collapse kind of um, opportunity that you might want to throw in as, as a referee if the darkness points in support of your NPCs isn't enough. So your NPCs can also break initiative. Uh, they can have a reaction in combat or an attack of opportunity. But all of those will cost darkness points for them. Right. So the third ca- um, the, the third category is affe- mm-hmm. affecting the PCs. And this is perhaps where you know, many of, uh, sort of skilled darkness points use will fall uh, to give the best benefit for the players in terms of the game experience. And again, some of these, of which there's about eight or nine, some of these again, might fall into that arbitrary category. And again, a GM needs to be a little bit careful or cautious about how often or how or what, what part of the game they throw it in. The ones I'm talking about are things like running out of ammo. Now, people are going to run out of ammo. That's fine. You could throw that in once in a while, but you're not going to run out of ammo every single time you have a combat right at the start. Uh, and, and similarly, uh, weapon jam. Okay, which costs three darkness points for for the referee to to make your weapon jam, but again, you're not going to want to throw that in every single every single time. You need to find a nati- um, a, a satisfying narrative moment where it increases the tension, where suddenly they're about to do something, but click, oops. Um, how do we yeah, get how, you, how do we get out of this one? Jam somebody's weapon against uh, some insignificant mook, but uh, 
maybe you've got a perfectly placed headshot against the big bad and then your weapon goes click yeah um yeah so another one that again could feel arbitrary potentially they list as lost possession which is fine um that's a three darkness point cost to do that but it, it feels again more to me that there needs to be a satisfying narrative reason why that possession has been lost in terms of the scenario or the particular game Rather than just, I mean, it's oops, funny that that oops, I've lost my to rifle. me a bit like a sort of hangover from Mutant Year Zero, where you know it, what you salvage and what you get to carry around with you is such an important yes. bit of fuel for the game. Yeah, do they have something similar like that in Mutant Year Zero? Uh, not that I can recall. No, mm. um, no, because. You d- you don't build up darkness points in Mutant Z- uh, no. Year Zero, so the 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 consequences are direct and on the character because you take damage from pushing pushing the roll. So other things that oh you... well then sorry that's me not knowing the system. That's we'll that's quite right. Um, but you're absolutely right about mutant with the the the, the management of your your possessions uh, is a really important part of the game because a lot of the dynamics for uh, for example the gearhead character archetype needs scrap in order to make stuff now scrap you know you have to account for it like you'd account for a weapon or your armor or food and water and so it becomes really important uh, particularly for those kind of characters who need it in order to make more weapons make more armor so it's a good it's a good dynamic which maybe we can expand on in another in a mutant year zero podcast one day yeah we'll have to do that but other things that we can use darkness points for you can affect the ship so you can have a ship system overload, which will take it out of action for a short while, or you can make a ship system break, which again, obviously needs to be fixed rather than coming back online on its own. But the other thing you can do with a ship is you can activate the ship problem. Now I've, I've found in my games that you can activate the problem directly or as I'm calling it, indirectly. So in my campaign, the, uh, the ship is haunted. The, the problem is actually cursed. And in terms of the mechanics, that means that you get negatives when you are portal jumping or when you're in deep space, if the problem is activated. Now, because the players immediately came up with the idea that the ship was haunted, um, I think there are indirect ways which can just give a bit of narrative colour to to the game as a result of that. And there's, there's a couple of examples. So in the last scenario, which I'll talk a bit about later on, they're trying to go stealthy to escape the... Zalusians who are pursuing them. And to do that, 8-Bit decides to turn off the transponder. Now, there's a role for that. He made it with 1-6. But I decided to spend a couple of points. And as the transponder was turning off, uh, it gave out an enormous radio squawk across all bands and then went quiet. That gave the Zalusians a chance to track them, follow, uh, you know, uh, locate where they are. And 8-Bit, um, Paul who plays 8-Bit, was... You know, scratching his head about where the hell did this come from it was trying to it gave him a real problem to mull on another example uh, in the same scenario they had a couple of Zalosian prisoners and in a fit of peak at one moment when everything was going wrong they killed one of them just out of spite so earned some darkness points uh, for me there and then but the second one they were trying not to be so evil so they decided to let the icons decide by tossing a coin so this guy was sucking the airlock and if if the if the die came if the if the uh, coin toss came down heads they were going to punt him out into space if it came down tails they would let him live so the dice roll came down tails so they were going to let him live but I thought well the haunted ship is a bit evil so I spent a couple of darkness points and had the ship open the airlock 
So the guy then got thrown out into space anyway. Didn't make a lot of difference to the actual thread of the game, but it was just a bit of narrative colour that, uh, you know, hopefully added to the overall atmosphere. Yeah. And of course, then uh, they all witnessed something terrible and you charged them all with some extra uh, darkness points, did you? I didn't on that occasion, no. Um, <laughs> I possi- no I'm just being wicked. I possibly could I'm have I'm not done. sure you can spend darkness points to earn more darkness points, can you? Um, uh, kind of pointless, really, isn't it? Uh, to do that. Well, no, he gets a GM more darkness points and I can spend them all against you, Dave. No, not if you spent them already, though. But anyway, um, another way... Uh, and there's another example which is a bit similar there actually Matt you can also activate personal problems for your characters and I've got one one of my characters Callum Carter is addicted to cybernetics and in an earlier scenario they were attacked by somebody with a shiny cybernetic wrist blade and they defeated them she wasn't dead but she was beaten she was broken Carter was umming and ahhing about whether he should chop her arm off to get the get the cybernetic wrist blades there was quite a debate in the group. The rest of the group were shocked and telling him, what the hell do you think you're doing? At the point he decided not to do it, I then spent some darkness points and said, I'm activating your personal problem. You've got to do it. So he then did it. He hacked this woman's arm off. Although the, the, the rest of the team did try and stop him. Uh, he was too quick. Took her arm off and off he went with a bloody arm with some nice right. shiny cybernetics in there. But again, your So point- how many darkness points did you spend to make him do that? Well, activating a personal problem is one, so it's okay. it's quite straightforward. And how many other crewmates were there? There, were, there would have been three others in three others. In so, range. for one darkness point spent, you could have made the others give you each a darkness point, earning you three. So you could have come out on top. I, I, I could have done. I, I think that kind of approach from a GM. Is probably uh, falls into Dick GM category. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> you, I'm you, just trying to push my luck. There. You might. You might not be wrong. I think it, it comes down to the conscience of the individual GM whether they want to uh, behave like that or not. Well, I guess when we get to the point where I start thinking of terrible ways in which the GM can behave, uh, we ought to uh, bring the segment to a close, don't you? Um. I guess so. Yes. I think we've talked about everything there. We have. I'd be really interested to hear um, listeners' comments on any of this and any thoughts on on how we are talking about using darkness points. So please, yeah, feedback, as with everything on our podcast, feedback to us any thoughts or comments you have, please. Yeah, and at the end of the programme, actually, I've got an email address that we can can give uh, listeners. Cool. So... um, before we finish, though, and I see we're running over time again, but that's a really good discussion about um, about uh, uh, darkness points rather than just the two of us reminiscing about games that we've played <laughs> yeah. in the past. Slightly more focused, maybe, this time on Slightly Cori- Coriolis-related stuff. Uh, we've still got... And I don't know whether we should call this a talent of the week or a talent of the month. Um, it, it's been more than a week, but less than a month since we recorded the last programme. But it'll be a talent of something, some period <laughs> of time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you mentioned earlier on that uh, Hanbel, uh, one of your characters, had uh, a kind of armoured skin. And uh, that was something that one of my players asked for as well. So let's listen to how I went about creating our talent of the week. We were generating characters for Coriolis and Andy wanted to be a humanite. I think what attracted him was the idea of having a low reputation rather than the extra talent humanites get 
But of course, getting to choose an extra, humanite-specific talent was quite exciting. As the character took shape, Andy's hopes for a low reputation were realised. He started off as a plebeian, with a reputation of just two, and then he saw that halved because he was a humanite, making it just one. Then, because he chose the soldier concept, he lost even that last point, giving him a reputation of zero. Which I love, by the way. The idea of a clone soldier having literally no value in society, bred only for war, seems very fitting. That he chose to come from Zalos, even more so. But we hit a stumbling block with the talents. The three humanite talents on offer in the book are pheromones, uh, plus two to manipulation once per session, water breathing, or resistant. Of the three, it's that last, resistant, which seemed most suitable for a cloned soldier. Andy wasn't making a special boat squadron commando or navy seal. Let's see what it says in the book about resistant. Your body can endure extreme weather and other natural hazards. The talent counts as armour, with an armour rating of 6 against natural damage. You can combine resistant with rugged for a total armour rating of a 9 against natural damage. That all sounds cool. It has a rogue trooper vibe that fits perfectly with the idea of a cloned warrior. But it wasn't what Andy was looking for. We left the character unfinished so we could think about it. We thought about some sort of berserker talent, but he had already drawn the Lady of Tears as his icon, and her talent is pretty much what I'd create for a berserker. I thought back to when we first read the description of Resistant, and our initial excitement at the word armour before we realised that it actually described using the armour mechanic to reduce the effects of environmental damage. There is, of course, the cybernetic talent, body armour, and I began to wonder if there could be a biosculpted equivalent of that for humanites. Let's pause here to address a possible area of confusion. The description of humanites on page 22 says, and I quote, Some groups of people are biosculpted. These humanites, as they are called, are often found in... and so on. But biosculpt is also a term used for bionic, not cybernetic, body modifications that player characters can pay for later in the campaign or during character creation in some concepts. You can't buy humanite biosculpt talents though. Humanites are clearly born that way, genetically modified, sometimes generations ago. I sort of wish Free League had kept a more consistent distinction between inherited biosculpts and aftermarket bionic sculpts, but they didn't. Watch out for that. Back to Andy's talent. How was I going to write up a biosculpted armour talent to offer him? Well, let's start by looking at the cybernetic version. Body armour. You are cybernetically armoured, giving you an extra armour rating of 3. The implant's rating is added to any other armour you may wear as well. The implants give you a minus 1 to dexterity for acrobatic manoeuvres. Cost, 6,000 burr. Now let's address the cost first. Cybernetic talents cost experience points and burr to acquire, or a talent slot and a gear slot at character creation. So do bionic talents, but humanite talents are free and indeed extra to the three that most characters get at the start. So my starting point was that the humanite armour should not be quite as good as cybernetic armour. 
That's easy. Let's make the armour rating 2 instead of 3. Then, let's look at that dexterity modifier. Putting myself into the role of a Zelosian biosculptor for a moment, I wonder why I'd go to the trouble of biosculpting armour when we know that the Zelosians are very capable producers of cybernetics. That biosculpted soldiers are cheaper, in every sense, than an investment in cybernetics might be reason enough, but I decided that humanite armour would not come with the same dexterity penalty as cybernetics. After all, the humanites will have grown up with this armour. They would be perfectly adapted to moving around in it. But I like the idea of a penalty of some sort. And while humanites might be used to moving around in their skins, medicurgs might not be used to working with them. So, a one-dice penalty on metallurgy rolls when treating an armoured humanite seems appropriate. And, following along that train of thought, I also decided that while humanites could wear other layers of armour over their hardened skin, cybercurgs would find it impossible to fit cybernetic armour on top of it. So, you can't have both talents. Finally, I decided I should add a description of what it looked like. In my head, I had decided that it would look like the character was drawn by Mike Mignola, but that's more difficult than I thought to describe. Anyhow, here's what I ended up with. Our very first talent of the episode. Humanite talent, hardened epidermis. The humanite skin acts as plus two armour rating, in addition to any worn armour. It does not give you any negative dexterity modifiers, but does give a minus one medicurgy modifier to anyone trying to treat the humanite. Cybernetic body armour cannot be fitted to humanites with a hardened epidermis. It has the appearance of cracked and discoloured skin. So thanks, Matt. That's that's really interesting. And, it, and it's interesting that I mentioned earlier that in two separate campaigns, our, uh, our players came up with the same thing uh, independently of one another, which, which perhaps... You know, really feels like it's something that needs a good ruling. And I really like what you've done with this ruling, partly because it means I haven't got to write one, which is great. I can just <laughs> I can just crib yours. Thank you. But I like the idea about the Medicurgy penalty. Um, I think that's really appropriate. And the cybernetics penalty is interesting as well. I would ask, so in my campaign, Hanbal, who is the character with the hardened epidermis, also has a targeting scope uh, in his eye. So do you think, with that rule, the cybernetics ban applies to all cybernetics, or does it apply just to body-related cybernetics? I think, I mean, I only thought about it. I, I wasn't wanting somebody to get hardened epidermis and then pay for cybernetic body armour and yeah. then get battle armour on top and, of that. And rugged them some as well. Sort of tank. Yeah. So I think it's really only about armour. But if you need me to justify it, I can say, of course... You know, the hardened epidermis might be about the eyelid, but what they're doing there with giving him a cybernetic eye is getting in through the soft tissue of his eye and connecting directly to his optic cord or something. So, I, I you know, I think we can um, we can justify that, even if you want to say that the skin stops other cybernetic things happening. Yeah, that sounds cool. I also hope that our, none of our listeners are, are in any way squeamish when we're talking about getting into the soft tissue of his eye. That sounds rather hard. Well, I, I, yeah, it's it's what the game's all about. Unless oh, you're going to get into people's eyes, then you true. shouldn't be playing Coriolis, should you? Uh, well, maybe, no, they're very true. Uh, you should be gardening, shouldn't you? Yes. And I should be gardening a bit later on, uh, <laughs> although it's raining, so I can't mow the lawn. Anyway, that this all came out of a conversation about Hamble, one of your characters. What's been happening in your most recent session? Right. Well, if you if you recall, 
the crew of the Spectral Corsair um, are heading to this destroyed system of Odicon to try and find the brother of their patron, who's called Resim. And he fled from his brother uh, for reasons as yet unknown. With them, they took two things, two people. One was a beautiful mystic called Alina, who had a clue to the last known location of Resim. And the second was Resim's favourite pet, his cat. A pregnant cat, uh, a possessed cat by all accounts, who was, which, uh, the cat was being taken along as an olive branch to prove to Resim that his brother had forgiven him and that he should come home. So they'd, they were travelling um, from the Kua system to get round to Odicon, and they'd ended up in, in Zalos system, where the Zalosian witch hunters boarded their ship in an effort to arrest Alina for being a witch. Ajit, Mia, defended her and a fight kicked off and they managed to escape having killed most of the Zalosian boarders and disabled the two little cruisers that were tracking them down. So they fled off into the dark of Zalos to, to lick their wounds. So the last scenario started at that point. Their destination in Zalos was an outpost uh, on a toxic little planet called Havila because they'd picked up uh, a group of illegal immigrants and were taking them to Havila uh, to get paid off. But clearly they were being hunted by the Zalosians, so they decided to go uber stealth, turning off the transponder uh, and shutting down their reactor after they'd done a long burn in the right direction of Favila. However, the Zalosian sensor operator, who had 7d6 to try and detect them, rolled four sixes. So with their reactor off, they had uh, no power for anything other than basic life support. So they couldn't use their sensors or anything like that. So they didn't know that they were being tracked this whole time. The moment that they fired up the reactor, the Zolosian cruiser called Abomination's End loosed off two antimatter missiles, and they suffered really badly. And this comes back to the discussion we had last time a little bit about incompetence or feeling incompetent, because they had so many bad die rolls. Um, Tony, my brother who plays Hanbal, the pilot, has a nine skill in, in piloting, and on one occasion he rolled all so nine. So is that nine, so that's... Uh... Uh, skill plus attribute total nine yes yep absolutely so he rolled nine nine dice got no sixes prayed to the icons rolled nine again and got no sixes so they were in a lot of trouble and were were praying a lot so i earned an awful lot of darkness points in the space of about half an hour and they felt very very under pressure so these missiles hit one of them critically hit the bridge where valdez hanbal and carter all were Eventually, they all failed their force roll. So when, when the bridge was hit, it decompresses. Uh, when you suffer explosive decompression, you have to roll against force in order to take any action. And when you fail, you immediately take a critical hit. So uh, Carter was okay. He rolled very low on his, his critical hit roll. And I roll all these in the open. I think there's a real sense of, of threat. And even though the risk of being killed is pretty low, actually, you need to roll a 65 or a 66, I think it's good to have it there. So I never... I never hide any of these rolls. Tony, uh, as Hanbal, rolled quite badly and was suffering from a ruptured kidney. So he was going to die, but he was going to die in a few days. Um, but Valdez had a, a ruptured artery in his leg and was going to die in minutes. So they were still dead in space. The Zalosian ship was right next to them. The captain was about to die. Their pilot was dying. They were in really, really deep trouble. The Havilan immigrants on the ship managed to get on the bridge and rescue them, placing the captain Valdez into interstasis to save his life but they were still at the mercy of the Zalosians until Alina got into one of the one of their escape pods and fired out surrendering herself to the Zalosians uh, in order to give them time to escape which they did they managed to escape 
They got back to Havila in the end. Both Valdez and Hanbel were saved, but Valdez lost his leg in order to save his life because the role was so bad. Now, Havila is an outpost which is failing. It's, uh, it's a religious outpost, obviously. Um, they are failing. They've lost what they call Raz al-Zika to the devotees of the hymns of the end times. And they, they thought that the spectral corsair had come in answer to their prayers. So once Valdez was sufficiently uh, healed, they decided to go and try and get Raz al-Zika for the Havilans. Raz al-Zika turns out to be a class 5 freighter, which they've now found floating dead in the asteroid field in Zalos' system called the Devil's Field. And they've just boarded it in an effort to try and take control, have come across autocannons that have been placed inside, managed to disable one of those, and have had their first encounter with a, a Bayara, which is a dark morph beast that lives in the darkness of space and inhabits places where the dark is at its most intense. Mm-hmm. And that is where they are to be continued. Cool. Now, it's interesting because they had a really successful space combat uh, a couple of sessions ago, and this one went really badly against them. How do you think your players felt about the, the swinginess, I guess, of this dice mechanic? Well, I think there was, I think they were fine because it it led to a lot of tension. Uh, there is clearly um, frustration when you've got a lot of dice and you don't roll any sixes, which does seem does seem to happen a little bit actually. I, I find, and the game that I played is in your campaign, Matthew. You think, yes, I've got a great big handful of dice here. I should get lots, but actually, if you've got six, seven, or eight dice, chances are you're only going to roll one six. You might roll two occasionally. You might roll none occasionally, but actually the, the odds are are not so heavily stacked in your favour in that sense, even though it feels like you've got a really big handful of dice to play with. Um, so I think it went fine. There was enough success and they managed to get themselves out of the out of the situation they were in with a little bit of uh, narrative quick thinking on my part to have uh, Alina get in the get in the escape pod and, and surrender herself. I was thinking at that point when they were when they'd lost the bridge. This wasn't how the scenario was supposed to play. Yeah. Um, they were supposed to escape these guys, but uh, here we are. How do I get them out of this bind? Because I didn't really want them being captured by the Zalusians at that point. Uh, but Alina surrendering herself not only added a really good, uh, narratively satisfying way of getting them out of the situation, but also gives them a problem because she is the one who has the clues to finding Resim. And without her or without her knowledge, they're not going to be able to find this guy. So they've been left with another problem as a result of all, all that stuff that transpired. Oh, excellent. So it's it's not reset button time. It's um, it's getting them out of a hole, but uh, but giving them more problems to deal with. That sounds great. Um, now, I notice we're, um, we're overrunning again. We are. Uh, we just like the sounds of our invoices. That's what it is. Uh, so what are we going to talk about next time? Well, I think we'd, we'd, all, we'd kind of agreed that we would do a session on space combat, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, because I haven't done any in my game, and I'm, I don't think I'm going to get a chance to, so maybe you can teach me space combat. Yeah, we can do a run-through. That sounds like a really good idea. Other ideas? Uh, we'd had the idea... Well, of... at some point in the future, we'll, uh, uh, we'll talk about atheism, as uh, Samaj um, requested, but yep. I guess we ought to ask, again, if anybody wants to feedback topics that we can look at in each episode... We'd be really grateful to hear them, and yeah, we might build an episode around uh, your topic in 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 future weeks and months. Yeah, that sounds that sounds a good idea. I think you know we'll we'll aim to have a a key 
topic like darkness points today space combat next time but we'll put in whatever subtopics uh, you the listeners would like to hear us talking about yeah and you can feed back to us on g plus which seems to be a, a really popular forum for people to comment uh, about the cast you can talk to us on twitter or even on reddit we've even joined reddit so that we can join the uh, coriolis uh, chat happening there or we've even for those of you who are of our age and rely on email we've created a an email address and that is coriolis at fiction suit or one word dot org and we'll get those emails as well and um, if you want to feedback using that then then that's uh, another way of talking to us yeah that's brilliant um, and as I said, we really welcome your 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 feedback. You are the fuel that will keep us going. So uh, please keep us fueled. So thanks for everyone. Thanks, Matthew. And we'll see you all next time. And may the icons bless your adventures. Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Font Fabric.